2: My
1: history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. This episode of the podcast contains explicit language. Episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In June 1856, hundreds of people gathered at the Musical Fund Hall in Philadelphia for a uniquely noteworthy event. Over 600 enthusiastic and excited delegates and 100 curious newspaper reporters assembled in the hall for the first national convention of the Republican Party. The Republican delegates were coming together in Philadelphia even as the divisive issue of slavery continued to radically alter the political landscape of America. To stake out their place in that shifting political landscape, the Republicans were eager to nominate their first-ever presidential candidate.
1: The presidential election of 1856 would end up being a three-way contest between the Democrats, the Republicans, and the Know-Nothings. The chief difference between the candidates for the three parties was on the question of slavery in the territories, and so, added to the fact that it was a relatively rare three-way race, the election proved to be a significant milestone on the road to disunion and civil war, especially in the way that the results in 1856 directly set the stage for the dramatic and pivotal presidential contest of 1860.
0: Of the three political conventions that met in 1856 to nominate presidential candidates, the Know-Nothings met first. They met in February in Philadelphia. As we mentioned previously, the Know-Nothings was the nickname of the American Party, and as you'll remember, the short-lived but remarkable popularity of the American Party was a reaction against the millions of immigrants pouring into the country in the 1840s and
1: 1850s. Different political groups with anti-foreign and anti-Catholic stances, as well as some secretive organizations that also espoused those same views, they all came together to foster the Know-Nothing movement.
0: And they were called the Know-Nothings because if someone asked them about their organization's membership or activities, they were supposed to say, I Know-Nothing.
1: Right. The movement advocated nativist policies, That is, policies such as allowing only native-born Americans to hold public office, toughening the requirements for citizenship, and basically ensuring the dominance of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in American politics and culture. In 1854, the Know-Nothings won impressive victories at the polls, particularly in Massachusetts, but also in Delaware, New York, and Pennsylvania.
0: But in 1856, the delegates attending the Know-Nothing Convention in Philadelphia strongly disagreed over the slavery issue. This heated disagreement led the members of the delegations from the northern states to walk out of the convention. The remaining delegates, mostly Southerners, selected former President Millard Fillmore of New York as their candidate. The Know Nothings platform didn't even mention slavery, instead noting simply that the Union was in peril and including a promise to avoid, quote, all sectional problems uniting upon those purely national, end quote.
1: In an interesting twist, the Yankee delegates who had walked out of the Know Nothings convention formed a North American party. They decided they would meet in June, just a few days before the Republican convention, Their plan was to nominate an anti-slavery candidate, but one who supported the Know-Nothing's nativist policies. And then, or so they believed, the fledgling Republican Party wouldn't want to split the anti-slavery vote, so the Republicans would have no choice but to support the North American Party's candidate.
0: And so when they met in June to implement their strategy, the North American Party selected Nathaniel Banks, a congressman from Massachusetts, as their presidential candidate. Banks, the Speaker of the House, was a know-nothing with strong ties to the Republicans, so he appeared to be the perfect man for the North American's plan.
1: But Banks had stronger ties to the Republicans than the North American Party realized, because while he accepted the nomination, Banks had a plan of his own. Banks' plan was that after the Republicans nominated their man, Banks would withdraw his name and throw his support behind the Republican candidate. Thus, the tables would have been turned on the North Americans, and they'd have no choice but to support the Republican ticket. Well, it sounds like an episode of the West Wing, doesn't it? But it worked, just as planned.
0: But all of that is getting a bit ahead of the story. Because while the Know-Nothings were the first party to meet in February, the next convention that met was actually the Democrats. The Democratic convention was held in early June when they gathered in Cincinnati, Ohio. President Franklin Pierce naturally wished to be renominated by his party, but the Northern Democrats refused to support the President because of his role in the repeal of the Missouri Compromise and his administration's endorsement of the pro-slavery territorial government in Kansas.
1: Our old friend Stephen Douglas, Senator from Illinois, himself had high hopes of gaining the nomination, but Northern Democrats once again played the spoiler since Douglas was deeply unpopular with them because of his key role in pushing through the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And so, as the balloting for the nomination went through more than a dozen roll calls, it soon became obvious that while Pierce and Douglas were supported by Southern Democrats, Northern Democrats were throwing their support behind James Buchanan of Pennsylvania. And once it was clear that Buchanan was the only one capable of achieving the two-thirds necessary for nomination, Pierce and Douglas withdrew for the sake of party unity.
0: James Buchanan's main qualification for the Democratic nomination seems to have been the fact that he had the good fortune to be out of the country serving as ambassador to Britain when the sectional dispute over Kansas started to heat up and then boiled over. It's ironic that Buchanan won the nomination largely due to the support of Northern Democrats, since once he was in office, he proved to be a doe-face that is, a northern politician, with southern leanings. The Democrats filled out the bottom half of their presidential ticket with John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky.
1: The Democratic Platform, largely written by Stephen Douglas, emphasized traditional Jacksonian views on government, but then about one-fifth of the document was devoted to the slavery issue. Not surprisingly, since Douglas authored it, the platform endorsed popular sovereignty as the preferred way to settle the question of slavery spread into the Western Territories.
0: As we said at the top of the podcast, the Republican Convention also met in June in Philadelphia. Because the Republican Party was just a few years old, its convention and platform were even more important than usual in American presidential politics. Born in the Midwest in 1854, the Republican Party was an odd mixture of seemingly incompatible factions. There were old-line Whigs, bolting Democrats, Free Soilers, Know-Nothings, and Abolitionists. While the new party incorporated diverse political elements, there was one issue that bound them all together. They all came together to support a platform that called for no further expansion of slavery. Four-fifths of the Republican platform dealt with slavery. It condemned the Pierce administration's policy in Kansas, called for the admission of Kansas as a free state, and insisted on the right of Congress to ban slavery in the territories.
1: William Seward of New York and Salmon P. Chase of Ohio were the most prominent and well-established politicians in the fledgling Republican Party, and so many people thought that one of them seemed to be the logical choice to gain the nomination. But over the course of their careers, both men had made too many enemies in the different factions that the Republicans were now trying to stitch together into a single strong and vigorous political party. And so in the end, the Republicans nominated John C. Fremont to be their first presidential candidate. The delegates believed Fremont would have enormous popular appeal. Not only was he a celebrity, a famous Western explorer known as the Pathfinder, But he was young and dynamic, he was just 43 years old, and, perhaps his biggest appeal, he had no political experience, and therefore no record to defend.
0: Once Fremont was firmly set atop the Republican ticket, delegates delegates nominated 15 names for vice president. One of those names was a former Whig from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln collected 110 votes on the first ballot, trailing only William L. Dayton of New Jersey, who had 221 votes. It's worth noting that Lincoln received votes from delegates from 11 states, stretching across the country from Maine to California. Nevertheless, Dayton received the nomination on the second ballot. Lincoln wrote to a colleague from his days in Congress and said, When you meet Judge Dayton, present my respects. And tell him I think him a far better man than I am for the position he is in.
1: And so, with the conventions out of the way and the battle lines drawn, the campaign for the presidency quickly developed into two separate contests. It was Buchanan versus Fillmore in the South, and Buchanan versus Fremont in the North. For the Democrats, the vital battlegrounds would be the lower north states of Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, and New Jersey. Pennsylvania, and any one of the others, or all of them except Pennsylvania, when added to the almost solidly Democratic South, would propel Buchanan to the presidency.
0: Democrats concentrated their efforts on presenting an image of union-preserving conservatism, while they painted the Republicans as fanatics and sectional extremists. That the Republicans were almost entirely a northern party, as the Democrats claimed, was true. In only four slave states, all in the Upper South, did Fremont's name appear on ballots. And in those states, the Republicans would win less than 1% of the vote. During the campaign, Democrats shamelessly played up the issues of slavery and race by labeling their opponents black Republicans, painting themselves as the defenders of slavery and the white race, Southerners threatened to secede if the black Republicans won the presidency. When the state elections in September 1856 saw Maine go overwhelmingly Republican, Governor Harry Wise of Virginia promptly put his militia on alert and wrote privately, if Fremont is elected, there will be revolution.
1: As James McPherson explains in his book, Battle Cry of Freedom, quote, Not only would a Republican victory destroy the Union, said Democrats, But by disturbing slavery and race relations, it would also menace white supremacy in both the North and South. Black Republicans, an Ohio Democratic newspaper told voters, intended to turn loose millions of Negroes to elbow you in the workshops and compete with you in the fields of honest labor. Democrats in Pittsburgh pronounced the main issue to be the white race or the Negro race, because the one aim of the party that supports Fremont was to elevate the African race in this country to complete equality of political and economic condition with the white man. Indiana Democrats organized a parade which included young girls in white dresses carrying banners inscribed, Fathers, save us from nigger husbands. End quote.
0: The charges of disunion and racial equality were effective and placed Republicans squarely on the defensive they vainly protested that it was the Democrats who were threatening to secede. The Republicans also pointed out that they did not advocate elevating blacks to complete social and economic equality with whites, but that they only sought to exclude slavery's expansion into the new western territories. Despite the Republican protest, the Democrats succeeded, <coughs> succeeded in planting their message firmly in the minds of the voters in the vital battleground states. In those key states, the election of 1856 hinged on the questions of abolitionism, racial equality, and disunion. Over and over again, the Democrats said the black Republicans wanted to abolish slavery, longed to grant equality to the black race, and were willing to dismember the union in order to accomplish their goals.
2: Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the
1: Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this?
2: Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast.
1: Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages.
2: And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer. Or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time. We think
1: you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast.
2: Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I would like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast. The place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: Republicans realized that to combat the charges being leveled against them, they had to go on the offensive. They believed that in the North, the weakness of the Democratic position was its subservience to the slave power. To again quote from Battle Cry of Freedom, the slave drivers declared an Ohio Republican, seek to make our country a great slave empire, to make slave breeding, slave selling, slave labor, slave extension, slave policy, and slave dominion forever the controlling elements of our government. A Republican victory, predicted a meeting in Buffalo, would ensure, for our country, a government of the people, instead of a government by, the, by an oligarchy, a government maintaining before the world the rights of men rather than the privilege of masters. End quote.
0: But the Republican message failed to convince enough voters in the key battleground states, And in the end, James Buchanan won the hotly contested presidential election of 1856. The outcome of the election said much about the changing political landscape in America. Buchanan won the 174 electoral votes to Fremont's 114 and Fillmore's 8. The popular count saw Buchanan gain 1.8 million votes, Fremont with 1.4 million, and Fillmore 870,000.
1: But those numbers don't tell the story of the clearly defined sectional lines that were drawn in the election. The Republican ticket carried all of the Upper North, that is New England, plus Michigan and Wisconsin, with a lopsided margin of 60% of the popular vote to 36% for the Democrats and 4% for the Know-Nothings. Large Republican majorities in key regions of New York, Ohio, and Iowa ensured a Fremont victory in those states as well. But while Fremont carried eleven northern states, Buchanan took the remaining five, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Indiana, and Illinois, along with California. Added to the solidly democratic south, those five northern states propelled Buchanan to victory. After the election of 1856, it was noted by many that even a slight shift in the political landscape, if, say, Pennsylvania switched sides, It would mean the South could vote as a solid block for a national candidate, and yet a purely sectional, Northern candidate would still prevail in the Electoral College. So in the realm of presidential politics, the South needed the North, but the North didn't need the South. With this realization, the Republicans began to look forward to the 1860 contest with keen anticipation.
0: The presidential election of 1856 was an important event for the three political parties involved. The Know-Nothings began a rapid decline into oblivion. The Democrats proved to be deeply split over the issue of slavery, and the Republicans' remarkable performance positioned them for a strong run at the White House in 1860.
1: So the election was an important event for the political parties, but it was also a turning point in the life of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had thrown himself into the election, campaigning tirelessly for Fremont. By his own count, Lincoln had spoken at public gatherings on behalf of the Republican cause more than 50 times in the four months preceding Election Day. Even though Fremont lost, the Republicans, with Lincoln's vital help, had won the complete state ticket in Illinois. Even though he himself was not serving in public office, Lincoln nevertheless became the leading Republican in his home state by the end of 1856. And his reputation had already started to spread to neighboring states as well. During the campaign, Lincoln had been invited to speak in Wisconsin, Iowa, and Indiana, although the only time he actually spoke at an out-of-state meeting was when he accepted an invitation to deliver an address in Michigan. And then, too, we need to remember that Lincoln gained important name recognition when he was put forward as a candidate for the vice presidential nomination at the convention in Philadelphia. That episode had resulted in his name becoming known to thousands of people across the country. So while the election of 1856 saw Lincoln become the leading Republican in his home state of Illinois, as we'll see, Lincoln will skillfully use that as a springboard, and over the next four years, leading up to the election in 1860, he'll work to position himself as one of the leading national figures of the party.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation.
1: Our recommendation this time is a biography of a pivotal figure during this period. It's James Buchanan, and the author is Jean H. Baker. I just want to read a bit from the introduction. Baker asks, who wants to read about presidential failures? And then she writes, yet there are important reasons to re-examine Buchanan. First, only in the literal sense did the Civil War begin on April 12, 1861, when the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter. It began in Buchanan's administration. To study Buchanan is to consider why the American Civil War, unthinkable a decade before, became inevitable. Lincoln has so dominated the story that he has obscured the sad but historically significant tale of his predecessor. As Americans try to fathom presidential accomplishment, they need to probe the dismal lessons to be learned from failed administrations. In substantial ways, unsuccessful presidencies serve as reference points, lessons in avoidance. Critical times often summon forth our best presidents, and it is worth taking the measure of those presidents who, given the opportunity, failed to rise to greatness. James Buchanan was one of those.
0: So that's Gene H. Baker's biography of James Buchanan. You can find it and all the rest of our book recommendations by going to the podcast's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Also at the website, you can find links to the podcast Facebook page and Twitter account.
1: Check out the Facebook page sometime, where each week we do creative stuff with Civil War facts and quotes. And on Twitter, we're still, just about every day, looking at what happened on that date 150 years ago in the Civil War. Well, I think that's about it for this show. Uh, Just a reminder before we sign off that the music we use on the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used by permission of Spiritwood Music. And with that, Tracy and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.